Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water, to support women as leaders in the conservation movement, to ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Chance, and today I am joined by both of our Louisiana Artemis ambassadors, Emily Hyman and Hannah Gray. How are y'all doing? Doing good, thank you. Doing good, doing good. That's good. I'm really excited to have you both here. We haven't had anyone from Louisiana on the podcast in quite a while, um, and there are some interesting things happening in Louisiana lately, um, so maybe we can talk about some of that. Awesome. So first of all, I would like both of you to just tell us a little bit about yourselves. Emily, do you want to start us off? Yeah. So Emily Hyman, I live in Natchitoches, Louisiana. Uh, professionally, I am in law enforcement. Uh, wish that I could afford to hunt and fish professionally, but we're not quite there yet. <laughs> Dreams. Uh, that's good. Yeah. Um, for hunting, I enjoy uh, white-tailed deer and duck, and I am trying turkey hunting this year. And then for fishing, uh, mainly largemouth bass. Nice. I'm a novice turkey hunter at best, so we can stumble together. Hannah, what about you? Uh, I'm Hannah Gray. I live in Pollock, Louisiana. Uh, Louisiana, born and raised. Hunting. I like to go after white-tailed deer, ducks. Uh, I am just starting out turkey hunting, too. I haven't bagged one yet, but that is, like, my goal for this year is I'm going to get me a turkey. Um, and then fishing, I like to catch white perch, largemouth bass. It doesn't really matter. I just like being on the water. <laughs> um, and then professionally, I am actually, like, in insurance sales. But I'm currently in college. I'm going to be a wildlife biologist. So hopefully, before too long, I'll have my dream job of being in the field every day. Yeah, that's awesome, Hannah. Are you getting um, your bachelor's degree right now? Yes. And I've been doing a lot of um, volunteer work with the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries as well. So that's been kind of helpful through the process. Yeah. What, what have you been doing with them? Um, this past hunting season, I did some deer checks with them, um, took samples from deer and things like that. And then upcoming, I'm looking to hopefully go with them to maybe do some uh, duck banding to band some ducks. Oh, duck banding is so much fun. I'm jealous. That's what I hear. I'm really excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll be a good time. Well, I guess uh, you're probably going to have your hands full with sampling deer for CWD this fall, huh? For sure, yes. I definitely foresee that in the future. Oh, yeah. So let's tell our listeners what that's about. It sounds like CWD was just found for the first time in Louisiana uh, eight or nine days ago? Yes. First confirmed case for the state. Yeah. So I guess that that was maybe the first of February. This episode is going to come out in a few weeks. Um, so that's a huge bummer. I know when I was in uh, graduate school in Mississippi, they found the first CWD positive in Issaquina County. And now y'all are going to have to help me pronounce the parish where they found this book. Oh, Tensaw Parish. Tensaw, thank you. <laughs> Say it wrong. Um, it's just right across the river, kind of, I don't know, maybe like less than 20 miles, I would say. 
away from where they found it in Mississippi. So that's a huge bummer. I know the deer that they, um, it was a hunter harvested adult buck taken on private land and it was clinical. It was already emaciated when harvested, which is a huge bummer because that means that it, it had CWD for a while, shedding prions in the environment. There's probably other animals that have it, right? Right. Do either of you hunt anywhere near there? I don't. Um, they're about two hours away from where I hunt. I actually um, have family that has a hunting club in Tinsall, and so I do sometimes get invited to go up there, and I know that their next the next year hunting season is going to be way different for them, I'm sure. Yeah. How, how so, do you think? I think um, there's going to be maybe some – baiting bands and then just as far as like transporting deer i think you know all that's going to be changed right so right now is it legal to hunt over bait in louisiana for deer yes okay are there any um restrictions like i know for a while in mississippi there was you it couldn't be like line of sight so if the bait was behind a tree it was okay or like there was a weird thing and then there was something about a hundred yards like if you, you had to be at least a hundred yards away is there anything like that uh, not no, that i know of. the the only restrictions are on uh public lands you you cannot bait at all um corn rice bran mineral salt anything um on any public land gotcha okay yeah i i don't know i guess we'll find out how the regs will change this season i mean Typically, you know, in any other state, there would be certainly they'd stop any supplemental feeding or baiting in at least the immediate area around there. So I guess it probably will look pretty different for your. Did you say your family friend, Hannah? Yeah, no, yeah, it's all my brother-in-law, actually. OK, gotcha. Well, yeah, um, it's a bummer. CWD, I don't, this isn't a CWD episode, but it's marching across the country, man. It's, if you don't have it now, you should be on the lookout. That's what I would say. So let's talk, um, let's talk just about hunting in Louisiana. I don't know. I know a lot of our listeners have probably never hunted in Louisiana or maybe not that much. Um, I know one of you mentioned something about duck hunting feuds. Oh, yes. Uh, Facebook <laughs> is quite entertaining. Entertaining uh, if you're if you're watching from a distance. Yes. <laughs> is that right? So yes. Uh, I'm in a couple of different Facebook groups uh, of Louisiana and Arkansas duck hunters. I did not experience it personally. Um, but there's a lot of, of people that are, are fussing because you'll have young hunters that will show up that, that are obviously novices. And they don't know what they're doing. And the older hunters, instead of taking them under their wing and explaining it, uh, decide to, to take it out on Facebook or they go up to this individual and they're just very rude. And, and it's not something that's going to be conducive to growing the sport. Uh, these people were called out, but obviously that, um, you know, they're not going to listen to some random person on Facebook saying, hey, why didn't you ask them to come hunt with you and show them what they're supposed to be doing or point them in a better direction? Right. Man, that's rough. Um, you know, the the one, I would say, the one experience I've had hunting where I felt, um, gosh, what is the word? 
I wouldn't say scared, but I was definitely intimidated and uncomfortable and a little bit like, uh, what do we do now? And I was actually with my husband. We were duck hunting. I was here in Tennessee and uh, we had found a blind. It was on public land. They, you can build blinds on public land in some areas of the state. And then, you know, it's public land. So whoever gets there first in the morning is their blind for the day. It wasn't anything fancy. It's like soggy plywood. Okay. <laughs> but we found that. And so we had set up there. We knew there were ducks coming in and it was still dark out. And we had the decoys ready to go. Everything. We were all set up in the blind and this boat comes. It was on like a lake. That's also kind of a river. Um, it was a damned reservoir. And this boat comes and they're flashing their lights. And so we flash back at them, you know, like typical etiquette, like, hey, we're here. And normally people would just be like, damn, and leave. <laughs> but yeah. these guys came came all the way up to the blind and were just cussing and like telling, not necessarily cussing at us, but like very vocally voicing their frustration and telling us that they had built the blind and they had planned to be there and like this is their spot and it wasn't like they were threatening us but they were just like very upset that we had beat them to this spot and like I didn't say anything because I didn't want them to know that I was a woman like they had no way of knowing that in the dark but I just thought it would be better if they thought we were a group of guys yeah <laughs> so my husband did all the talking and he pretty much was just you know he was just normal and just I don't even remember what he said but after they left we were just like god you know if they hadn't been so rude we would have just invited them to come sit with us like yeah more guns it could have been fun like maybe we would have made friends <laughs> but yeah that was the that's a bummer because I don't know that's not representative of all duck hunting certainly but it can it can be tough sometimes yeah I'm lucky I've never experienced it um Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries issues several citations every year. Uh, there's a law against harassing hunters. Um, yes. So if fishermen get too close, uh, I think it's 100 yards uh, that they have to stay away from anyone that's obviously hunting. And and they, they work a lot of complaints at that. I'm sure. Yeah, that's a good thing for everybody to know. I guess, Emily, is that a state law? It is. Okay. We have the same law here in Tennessee. So I imagine a lot of states probably have that um, against hunter harassment. That's it's a good thing as a hunter to know that that's out there for you. Yeah. I mean, it's public land. We're, we're all having access to it. Right. Hannah, do you duck hunt very much? I do. I did not really this year. Um, but my whole take on that whole thing is well, in Louisiana, we're so fortunate enough that we have so much public land that we have available compared to other states. And with that, at the same time, there's so many hunters who have hunted that same spot in public land, you know, for X amount of years. And so right. they think that that spot is their spot and that they yeah. own it. And so whenever somebody new does come in, it, it causes problems. It causes great problems. And there's lots of feuds over that. Yeah, it's an interesting thing for sure. <laughs> I think, I don't know this, but I feel like in some ways uh, this situation is comparable to what's kind of happening out West with like elk hunting. I feel like, you know, people will hike 
10 miles into the back country to make sure that they can be by themselves and get on elk and they just see a bunch of other hunters and no animals. <laughs> different places, different problems, but it's all kind of similar maybe. And that's another reason to hunt right off of the parking lot. Gosh, yes. I am such a big proponent of that, especially now that I'm going to be carting around a baby on my back. Yeah, we're not going far. Um, we're looking at turkey season. Both of you have expressed a desire to get out there after turkeys. Uh, what What are your plans? Well, I just got the email an hour ago that I was selected for a lottery hunt uh, at a wildlife management area about 30 minutes from me. Sweet. Yes, I'm very happy about that. It was the, the area that I wanted and the dates that I wanted. So I lucked up. So I guess uh, sometime this month or next, I need to get out there and start scouting. Um, I've deer hunted it before, but never uh, saw or heard any turkeys in the area in which I was deer hunting. So I guess I get to go exploring this other half of it. That's exciting, Emily. I don't, again, I'm a novice turkey hunter. But I do have some friends that are very experienced turkey hunters. And what they always tell me is that there's not a whole lot of point in scouting more than like a couple weeks out from the season. Because I guess turkeys just move that much. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. That'll be interesting to see see what you come up with and then see what things are like on the ground. Because I thought the same thing. I saw a hen uh, when I was deer hunting this past fall and I was like oh man it was at a new WMA I was like I'm gonna take a note of this and then I told my friend Mary and she's like good luck finding that thing during turkey season (laughs) yeah okay what about you Hannah well this year for deer season I was lucky enough to get to hunt some private land and so I'm thinking I'm gonna go scout there and see if maybe I could find a good spot for turkey season and then if not, if that doesn't work out, then I'm going to go maybe scout in, um, we have some federal land near my house. I'm going to go scout around there and see if maybe I can find some signs of some turkeys. There you go. I One of my other goals for, it's not going to happen for turkey season, but for next fall is to get some private land access because I don't have a lot of good public land that's easily accessible. Like y'all are talking about you know, within 30 minutes of the house and I don't really have that. So I need to get some private land access. How have either of you done that with someone that you didn't know previously? And if so, how did it go? Uh, I've actually done it twice. Um, Where I grew up is about two hours from where I currently live. And there's uh, an area in town within the city limits, um, that we work a lot of car crashes, uh, vehicle versus deer. So one of the perks of law enforcement is you get to see all the deer on the side of the road at two in the morning that are about to get run over. So I went and talked to, uh, I saw, I saw a truck on the side of the road and, uh, knew that he was hunting that area. And so I left a note, uh, my business card and asked if he could call me that, you know, it wasn't anything pressing. Um, but I just wanted to talk to him. And he's actually from where I grew up, so it was kind of cool. Um, and made the arrangement with them, ex- you know, explained the problem of we work a lot of car crashes there. The speed limit is 55, so a lot of those are injury crashes. And asked if I could just go hunt the does, and uh, that way I wouldn't mess with their bucks, and I would only do it, you know, uh, certain times, you know, that it wouldn't mess up their schedule or anything like that. And so he granted me access 
and then there's another area um, that I could probably walk to from my house. And it was the same thing, um, a residential neighborhood that has a lot of gardens, uh, a lot of, you know, they're, they're very into landscaping. And the deer are constantly going and eating the rose bushes. So uh, two different locations in the last three years that I was able to just go. Um, and, and I'm just trying to fill a freezer, you know, uh, having a buck is great. But when, when you start asking for permission to hunt, uh, if you start out with just the does, you, you get a lot better reception from these people. For sure. Wow. That, yes, I'm with you. That's, that's awesome. How did it go with the residential area? Like, how did you figure out who to talk to and what was that conversation like? Uh, so I use Onyx, uh, the app and it gives landowner, uh, data. And then it's also within the jurisdiction that I patrol. So I've actually been there a couple of times in different complaints. So they, they knew me from a professional standpoint. And so uh, I would just, you know, wait till I got off of work and uh, uh, swing by their house right quick, knock on the door. And, you know, they recognized me from, from work and just went from there. And uh, it's always great because it's good PR for the department. If I could say, you know, are you having these same problems that you had a couple of years ago? Is there anything you know that we can do better? Do you want extra patrols, anything like that? And so it, it's a win-win uh, professionally and personally. Nice. Hannah, what about you? I have not, I will say that is a goal of mine, um, especially like around where I live. There's some places that I would like to, maybe see about doing that I just I haven't gained the courage yet honestly <laughs> I'm with you I need to though I think it's important and as Emily has demonstrated it can pay off big time yeah that's a really really great success story like that makes me definitely want to go and try it out <laughs> oh it was nerve-wracking I was very nervous it, it took me about a week to work up the courage to go do it <laughs> but the, the once you get the first one out of the way um it really does get easier. There's a couple more that I want to talk to this spring and the summer. Um, and it's always nice to offer a service, um, you know, especially if it's an older uh, person that owns it of, Hey, do you need me to come weed your garden? Do you need me to come and, and help with whatever tractor? You know, I, I have several skill sets that I can offer them in return for use of their land. Yeah, that's a great point. Have you, have you harvested um, any deer off of either of those properties? Um, I haven't off of the second one. Off the first one, I got two does. And uh, I always make it a point to, to offer to split the meat or, you know, the first deer is theirs and anything after that I can keep, you know, anything to, to show appreciation and to show that, you know, I'm not trying to be greedy. I don't mind sharing. Um, you know, a lot of the, 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 the first property, it's a younger group, but the second one, uh, I guess the guy is probably in his 60s. Uh, he's a, a widower, and it's hard for him to get out there and, and go harvest any of these deer. So, uh, you know, if I do get one out there, I'll definitely um, at least give him half and, and whatever cuts that he wants. Yeah, that's, I love that. That's, I think that's key. For sure. Okay. So talking about these deer that you've harvested, and also I know you mentioned seeing deer hit on the road. I am, I love roadkill. I mean, if I see a deer get hit by a car, 
and that car's not circling back for the deer, I'm going back for it. I'm not obviously taking something that's been sitting out there and bloating, but um, I just don't see the point in something getting run over a million times and, you know, the crows getting it when it can be in my freezer. So let's talk about what's in the freezer. Hannah, what's in your freezer? I've got some white-tailed deer. Um, I harvested two bucks this past season. And then I also have a whole bunch of fish. <laughs> I've got largemouth bass um, and a lot of like white perch and that sort of thing. So we're doing good so far. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you're well-stocked. For sure. Emily, what have you got? Uh, I have a few roadkill deer that I got uh, from working and uh, a handful of ducks, I think, at this point. I, I try to eat as we go because I'm bad about, you know, forgetting things that are in the freezer and, and you open it up and you can't find anything. So <laughs> yep. all of the ducks were eaten pretty much that day or the next day. Do either of you uh, wax your ducks or pluck them? Uh I didn't get any big ducks this year. All I got was some wood ducks and some teal. And so I just breast them out. And then um, anything that's remaining, I have five dogs that love to eat ducks. So they get to, <laughs> to snack on that. Lucky dogs. Hannah, what do you do with ducks? Normally just breast them out. Um, I've plucked some before and cooked them whole. But normally just breast them out. Oh, man. Do not cook ducks whole. I'm telling you. <laughs> I don't know if you've been successful, but I've never cooked a duck whole and had it turn out. We we wax and pluck all of our ducks now and then break them down. So we'll, you know, we'll have the breast and the legs and we take out like a lot of the innards and save those. And then we render the fat and that has just changed our world. So if you're interested in it, I highly recommend and then I've been making stock out of all of the carcasses too. And like even the tongues, like I don't, don't, we don't waste anything from ducks. I used to make crafts out of the feathers when I used to have free time before I became a mom. Um, so then we really didn't waste anything. Now we just throw the feathers away. But uh, There's actually a guy in Facebook that's always, look. I can never remember his name, it's screenshotted. But uh, he, he, he makes uh, flies for fly fishing. And he always asks for, if you harvest this species, can you give the feathers from this area the bird? Because it's really good for making flies. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't know you could use them to make flies, but it makes sense. So on the subject of ducks, I think one of you mentioned that there's some proposed bag limit changes for ducks. What's the deal with that? Um, it's another thing. I, I, I love Facebook. Um <laughs> Some people are proposing uh, changing either the total bag limit or per species limit uh, per day. So where I hunt, it's predominantly uh, wood duck and teal and then more pintail than I could ever count. So they're trying to decide whether they want to amend it from uh, one pintail to maybe you can harvest two per day. Um, and then possibly changing the total uh, bag limit for the day instead of six ducks down to three to try and increase the population. Um, Oof, that's a big change. Yeah, um, 
I, I never uh, had a full bag this season. I think the most I got to was uh, four. And um, mainly it was because I, I would get off of work at six in the morning and then try and go hunt and then have to be back at six o'clock that evening. And I really didn't want to stay out all day looking for two more ducks. That's fair. I think you make a good point, though. I mean, this so talking about changing a bag limit from, like, say, six ducks to three ducks for a day, it's funny because I think so many, a lot of hunters might be really angry about that, but I think the reality for a lot of hunters is probably the same as what it was for you, Emily, and that they're rarely going to limit out anyway. <laughs> so yeah, it's interesting. It would not hurt my feelings at all. Yeah, that's interesting to think about that. And everybody from Minnesota on down, um, everybody's constantly fussing about there's no ducks here, there's no ducks there, um, of just trying to see, you know, is there, is a the population, you know, staying where it should be? Is it increasing? Is it decreasing? And then per species, um, and multiple states would have to talk, you know, through this, they'd have to go to the federal level. But uh, I have yet to see somebody say that, oh, it was a great season. There were tons of ducks. You know, we limited out every day or anything like that. So it's something that needs to be considered. Absolutely. Yeah. And ducks are an interesting one because, like you said, they're migratory. So, you know, they're nesting up way up north. And then you're finding them down in Louisiana at a completely opposite time of year. And but both of both ends of the country on into Canada are impacting the population and everything that's happening on their journey between those two areas. Right. So, Oh yes, there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. And I actually, um, one of my professors in graduate school, he's a, he's a duck guy. It's like his whole career. That's what he does. He actually thinks that the flyway is shifting like over into Oklahoma um, because of hunting pressure. And that is fascinating to me because I, I mean, it makes sense. Like if there's enough pressure, it seems like the ducks could shift, but, um, yeah. So sometimes I wonder it, if it's a population issue or if it's really just <laughs> overhunted in the eyes yeah. of the ducks. And, uh, and, and I've read a lot about that. Um, Normally, uh, I, I just had a, a training class down in South Louisiana, and it's full of rice fields. And this time of the year, normally the fields are white with geese. And in the two-hour trip that I had through all of these rice fields, I did not see the first goose. I didn't see the first duck. Wow. Hannah, you're in the thick of all this in school. What are they telling you? I honestly haven't gotten into that too much um but I just think personally with ducks kind of like going back to what you said there's just so many different factors because they're coming from all over and there's so many you know different factors into it it's not really something that's just with our state per se yeah definitely okay so I know it sounds like both of you are much bigger anglers than I am, <laughs> but, um, I know I always say that I'm in the boat for the snacks. Like that's, that's what brings me to the lake to fish and just being on the water is fun. And I'm happy when they're biting, but I'm not really like, I'll sit and sleep for ducks, but 
I want it to be sunny when I'm fishing. Emily, you kayak fish, right? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works and maybe how you got started? Um, so I live in a residential area, so I don't have a lot of space. And so a kayak was something um, that I could take to any location. Um, either, there's some lakes that have restrictions on motors and things like that. So a kayak is something that I could take to any location, uh, put in, and then at the house it would not take up much room. So I got on YouTube and started looking up uh, kayak bass fishing because I, I, I grew up pan fishing and all of that and uh, ate so many fish as a kid that I don't want to eat fish anymore. But I still love to fish, so bass fishing is, is where it's at for me. And found a guy by the name of Chad Hoover who founded um, kayak bass fishing as a, uh, a tournament um, group. And so uh, I fish the month-long tournament. It's based on uh, length instead of weight, which is very nice because, um, and, and there's a lot of rules to it, but you use a measuring board, uh, top five fish for the month wins it. That is so cool. I didn't even know tournaments like that existed. Oh, they're amazing. Um, last year, I qualified for the national championship. I didn't get to fish it uh, because of work schedule. And I'm hoping to qualify for it this year. It'll be in Tennessee, which will be awesome because we don't have smallmouth here. And I've caught one smallmouth my entire life and would love to go out and get a limit of smallies. Oh, my gosh. Where in Tennessee? Uh, Paris, I believe. Okay. That's not too close to me, but it's not too far. <laughs> well, we can go and have dinner one day. Yeah, absolutely. Man, I, I've actually never even been in a kayak. I would love to do that. Uh, they, so I, even though I have no room, I went and bought a John boat this year for duck hunting and actually duck hunted out of my kayak most of the time because it's so much easier with just me of, uh, it's a lot easier to launch and transport and all of that. Um, but, uh, the kayaks are more stable when you get into the actual fishing models, um, than my John boat. So it's amazing. I can stand up, I can walk around. I put a trolling motor on it, which of course you have to register it then, but it really saves your arms, um, for tournament fishing, you know, when you want to go burn the banks and all of that, if you don't have to worry about paddling, um, it's a remote controlled trolling motor. And it's just amazing. Um, the other aspect of it is in a boat, you can bring a dozen rods. Uh, you can bring as much tackle as you, you can fit. In a kayak, you have limited space. And so it forces you to be a better angler because you have to say, you know, oh, it's, it's cold right now. Um, you know, fish are going to be deep. So I don't need to bring all my topwater stuff. Um, so in the winter and in the, the heat of the summer, you know, it's not that big of a deal because you know your, your go-to baits. But come springtime, it starts getting a little funny because the weatherman says one thing and the weather does another. And you should have brought your top water, but you don't have any. So it, it forces you to get outside your comfort zone. Wow, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, okay, we are gonna take a quick break to hear from some of our partners. For more than a hundred years, pheasant hunting has been a storied South Dakota tradition. And for the next century, South Dakota's focused on making pheasant hunting even greater. 
welcoming more hunters to the field, showing the hunting community is for everyone. That's a legacy to stand the test of time. Go to huntthegreatestsd.com to hear stories from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. That's huntthegreatestsd.com. South Dakota, sportswomen welcome. Another elk and deer test positive for CWD in Idaho. CWD detected for the first time in Alabama. The CWD Research and Management Act sails through passage in the House. There's no doubt CWD is in the news and there's no doubt it's spreading across the country. There's also no doubt it's a complicated disease and a complicated issue. Artemis and NWF Outdoors are here to help. Check out the CWD Chronicles, where we talk to leading experts about the latest science, policy, and hopes for the future regarding chronic wasting disease. Find it on the NWF Outdoors channels or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so the tournament. If it's a month long, are you just taking photos then of your measured fish? Yes, so um, through Kayak Bass Fishing, through, through their tournament, um, they use an app uh, called Fish and Chaos, and it automatically calls, um, you know, your, your smallest fish. Uh, there's, there's a lot of rules about the fish has to face a certain direction, so the nose has to be the left and the uh, belly is towards you. Um, you have a unique identifier that's released, uh, right, right before the tournament starts. So I think it, it pops up at midnight on the first of the month. And so that unique identifier has to be in every photo on a special card, um, that you just print off the internet and it's all catch photo release. So it's really great for conservation because, um, you're not worried about transporting the fish from one end of the lake to wherever the weigh-in station is, where the conditions may be different. The, you know, the water temperature may be different. They're sitting in a live well for you know, four five, six hours at a time. From the time you catch the fish, so long as it's not an angry fish that doesn't want to behave to the time that you release the fish for me is about two minutes. Uh, and of those two minutes, it's only out of the water for about 10, 15 seconds. Okay. You're a better fish handler than me. Because as you're describing this whole protocol, I'm imagining all these crappie that we caught last spring that, like, if I tried to put them on a measuring board and take a photo at the same time, and I was on a kayak, the only pictures I would get would be, like, crooked ones of an empty measuring tape. <laughs> Yes. So, uh, and, and there's actually some really good videos on YouTube. What I did was I would practice for about 10, 15 minutes a day of the whole routine, because you've got to have a, a, a routine for this. Otherwise you're going to forget your ID or you're going to have the board backwards or, or anything like that. Um, and there's a lot of helpful tips and tricks to it. So making sure the board is not dry. So you dunk it in the water, bring it back up. So it's wet. So it, it helps with the, uh, slime on the fish 
to make it more comfortable. And if you angle it down and it, it's just, it really comes down to practicing for about 20 minutes a day for a week of exactly what you're going to do so that you can get that fish back in the water. So you can get that bait back in the water. Very cool. Hannah, what about you? Do you fish tournaments like this? No, but that sounds really, really cool. <laughs> Honestly, I've never heard of um that type of tournament, and that's really cool that it's not by weight. Yeah, Emily, why isn't it by weight? So uh, the pros, um, they have certified scales, and you've got the little guy that rides around in the boat um, that, that verifies the weight and all of that. Um, but there's ways to manipulate a fish's weight, uh, to, to cheat, to get a bigger weight, um, that the pros, they have their rules of, you know, you have to have a, a independent person weighing it or at the weigh station or whatever, and they can inspect, make sure you're not, uh, you know, putting something in the fish's mouth to make it weigh more or anything like that. With the, uh, length, um, it's a lot easier to verify. They have a lot of really good software to make sure that you're not using the same fish, uh, in multiple photos. So they just updated the rules that went into effect at the beginning of this month of hand placement of it cannot be, uh, anywhere above or under the gill plate. Um, and then once you get past the back of the dorsal fin and into the actual tail, you can't have your hand or anything covering that. And they use software to make sure that the same fish is not submitted, A, by the same angler more than once, or B, by different anglers more than once. You know, people aren't sharing a fish. Um, the measuring board's uh, catch products is the, the golden standard. Um, they're aluminum. The plastic ones, you could push and flex it um, to get... Uh, an extra quarter inch, half inch uh, on that fish. Um, Chad Hoover, uh, the founder, actually just did a really good video on how to cheat and explain why all the new rules are coming into effect. So it, it's really interesting, um, the science behind them, the, the judges. Yeah, absolutely. So this sounds like a solitary endeavor but I have to ask, I mean, it, have you made friends through this? Uh, yes, actually. Um, in fact, I had an issue with uh, the wiring on my kayak for my graph and, and lights and all of that. Um, so through these tournaments, made friends with a guy that's in Lake Charles, which is about two and a half, three hours away from me, that does uh, kayak rigging. And so was able to get a couple of questions answered with that. Um, it's a very, it's the opposite of duck hunting, actually, is the best way to describe it. If everybody <laughs> is, they're all trying to help each other. Um, you know, the pros in this sport, uh, you know, when, when they came to Shreveport, I was uh, invited to go up there, even though I couldn't fish the tournament, invited to go up there and just have dinner with them. Because I was, you know, an hour away and they, you know, we wanted to meet each other. That's wonderful. You know, what kind of fishing do you do? I do a lot of brim fishing in the summertime um, and then as well as largemouth bass. And then like right now, this time of year, I'm starting to go white perch fishing, which is a lot of fun. 
Can you explain what brim are? Because before I moved to the South, I never, I had never heard the term and I'm still a little confused about what does and doesn't qualify as brim. It's, it's a bluegill. Okay. I used to think it was, um, like a lot of panfish. Like I thought it was just like a general term for panfish. And then I thought it's a general term for sunfish, but it's really just bluegill. It's really all of the above. <laughs> okay, that, this explains my confusion then. That's funny. Okay, so you can use it however you want, basically. Basically. That's my takeaway. <laughs> okay, so one of the other things that I know has kind of struck um, one or maybe both of you during your season is trash, garbage, Um this is definitely something that irritates me whenever I'm out. I mean, it doesn't even have to be public land, but it's definitely much worse on public land. And here in Tennessee, there's, um, if you, I mean, if you fish or, or if you hunt, which is usually what I'm doing, if you hunt a lake, they're um, typically reservoirs. There's not a lot of natural lakes, especially in East Tennessee. And so they manipulate the water levels because they're dams that are usually creating hydroelectric power. And so, when they lower the water, the whole shoreline, I mean, on some lakes will just be trash. Like the old water line is now a garbage line <laughs> and it really stinks. I don't, what is it like in Louisiana? Uh, it's the same. You can't drive anywhere. You can't go anywhere without seeing trash of some kind on the road. Um, at the lakes, it's a lot of, uh, alcoholic beverage bottles there's a lot of coke bottles there's a lot of you know chip bags and things like that um that uh, i don't know if people are doing it intentionally or they're just not securing their uh, garbage properly and then of course with hunting the uh, rice bran and corn bags are everywhere it's it's ridiculous yeah i think like that is the trash situation is probably my biggest pet peeve when it comes to all of our natural resource, our natural resources in Louisiana, um, I don't think I've ever been to any body of water that there was not trash or, like Emily said, just driving down the road. I like to play a game sometimes of just counting the number of corn bags or rice bran bags that are on the side of the road where somebody just didn't secure it in the back of their truck and then it flew out and now it's just sitting there. Man, it's frustrating. It's really frustrating. And I don't know, I don't know the solution. Like, I don't know how to make people care. <laughs> Especially it's frustrating when you know it's other people that are out hunting and angling, right? Like it's, I mean, not always, but when you see a deer corn bag, you know that somebody that was hunting. Or when you see like, a, you know, on the water, on the edge of the water, you'll see like those little plastic things that you buy bait in or that like if you buy worms it'll come in that so you're like yeah. okay this was from somebody that was also fishing like i don't know what do you what do you all think the solution is uh i keep uh so the first bag of whatever i bait with for deer season i throw that bag in my toolbox in my truck and then every time i see one you know if i'm able to i will pull over and pick it up but I use the bags um, for insulation for my chicken coop. So 
it's almost like I'm appreciative of the people that are, are uh, littering because I get to go steal them and use them for insulation for my chickens. Uh, I love that. That's awesome. Reuse and recycle, maybe. Definitely yes. reuse. Yes. Hannah, what do you think? I mean, I know that we're never, you know, we're never going to be able to get some people to understand that that's not okay and to understand that we it's a privilege you know to have all of these resources that we have and we should take care of them so I guess kind of the only part that we can do is like Emily said to try to pick up what we see and do our part to try to clean up yeah absolutely I think and I think too it's a, a cultural thing right like none of the people that I hunt with would ever do that. Or if they did, I would just rip them a new one right then and there. <laughs> you know, like, that, that is the culture of my hunting peers. And so I guess maybe just trying to, trying to convey that to others that don't have the same expectations. Well, in, in, in with duck hunting of, of, instead of people bashing each other and, and saying, oh, you're hunting too close to me, if they would invite them in and then you could teach them of, hey, you know, you've got four shells that are sitting there in the water, go pick them up. And, you know, starting yes. like that of, of a mentorship. Mm -hmm. I'm neurotic about picking up shells. <laughs> like as soon as I shoot, I'm like, okay, how many shots? Where are they? And, you know, yeah, that's a thing. Actually, there's a, a really neat company that, um, we are getting some ammunition donations from it's called Rio ammunition and they have a biodegradable wad, which I think That's is awesome. so cool. Yeah. Because I mean, you can, I have found like 10% maybe of the wads that I've ever shot in my life. So that's really cool. That is awesome. All right. I want to hear, well, okay. First of all, did both of you start hunting as kids? I did not. Um, I went a few times, uh, as a little kid, uh, my dad doesn't hunt. He hunted as a kid and then just got away from it. And all of my grandparents had passed by the time I was 10. So I didn't really get into it until probably seven or eight years ago, you know, getting back into it. Yeah, I did. Um, I started out when I was a kid going squirrel hunting with my dad um and then we would do some deer hunting as well and then I lost my dad whenever I was 16 and after that my brother-in-law kind of took me under his wing and so I did a lot of deer hunting with him so I, I've pretty much been lucky enough that I've been doing it since I was a kid um I still don't know near about what I should know honestly there's Join so the club. I learned like I learn something every day whenever I'm hunting or fishing like every day is a learning experience um I don't think I'll ever learn everything <laughs> oh absolutely what would be the fun in that Emily what was it like to get into hunting as an adult uh, it was terrifying um especially as a woman because uh I'm not the very girly type, you know, I don't, I don't do the whole makeup and nails and all of that. Uh, so my peers are the guys, but the guys, uh, not intentionally, but just, 
you know, they would make comments and things like that. So, you know, trying to keep up with them. Uh, I watched a lot, a lot, a lot of YouTube, read books, uh, spoke to, you know, as many people as I could. Um, there's not many women, uh, sports women in my area. Most of the, the wives of the guys uh, don't hunt or don't fish or, or, or don't do it to the level that I wanted to. So it was a lot of learning through trial and error. Um, but that to me made it so much better because I can say that I went and I earned that, you know, I, whenever you harvest anything, it's, it's, that was not given to me. That was hard earned through months and years of reading and, and watching and all of that. Yeah. I love that. I love that, that the, the challenge in it makes, makes it that much more rewarding when you are able to see the fruits of your labor. It took a while, but it it was definitely worth the wait. So let's talk about, sorry, Emily, were you going to say something? Oh, no, that's good. Uh, let's talk about favorite moments on the field or the water. And I would change that for both of you to say, let's talk about favorite moments in the field and on the water. Because I think you probably both have uh, dual examples there. Hmm, that's a tough one. Um in the past year or are you talking ever ever all right my favorite deer hunting was opening day two or three years ago uh is when i really got into bow hunting uh for deer and it was opening day and october 1st is normally quite warm in louisiana but it was one of the rare moments where it was actually in the 50s and uh, right at first light, um, the sun was just starting to come up, and I had two does walk out of uh, a wood line. I was in a hardwood bottom, and uh, the bigger of the two does actually got to the base of my tree and never knew that I was there, and that was the most exhilarating thing I've ever experienced uh, as far as deer hunting. That's awesome. It's is it's something special to be so close to, especially an animal that personally I think is so charismatic, um, and and when they're out just doing their thing and you manage to get that close to them. Oh, it was it was. I still get goosebumps thinking about it. Love that, Hannah. What about you? What's your favorite? One of your favorite moments in the field? I think I will have to say this past deer season. I was um, deer hunting, and I was honestly probably not being the best sportsman. I was getting very discouraged, and I wasn't having a good morning, and I was very discouraged, and I was like, oh, I think I'm going to go home. Like, I'm going to go home at, I think it was 9 o'clock. I said I was going to go home, and then... So it was getting closer and closer to that time. And like, I was getting more discouraged and I was like, uh, well, like as soon as I was getting ready to leave, I'd be dang, I look up and there's a deer. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> and so then that like lifted my spirits up and then I was able to harvest it, which made, made my spirits better. And I was like, see, this is why I can't get discouraged. Like I can't do this to myself. I need to stop getting discouraged so easily. And so it really like helped bring my spirits up for the rest of the season. Oh man, hunting is an emotional roller coaster. Can we just talk about that? Like how many times I've sat there and after like two and a half hours of looking at the sky and nothing, I'm like, we should just leave. 
almost definitely um at least a hundred times a year i am convinced that not a single animal lives in all of louisiana <laughs> right. yeah that's me i'm like what is going on like i can see them whenever i'm driving down the road like what's going on here <laughs> There's literally this family group of deer that live in the neighborhood where I live. And I know their habits intimately because I walk the ro- the roads of our neighborhood every day with my baby on my back. And I'm just like looking down at the ground and I can see other tracks and it snowed a few times this winter. And so then I really knew what they were doing and where they were. And I can't find a deer in the woods like I didn't harvest a deer this year but I shared the same space with these that so often that I know everything about them and that's what keeps you coming back though is the 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 days the hours of not being successful and questioning yourself and then all of a sudden the stars align and there's this beautiful buck and if you're me then your scope is off by a foot and you don't even touch him (laughs) but you tried. Yes. Oh man. Okay. Favorite moments on the water. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, so this past July, I had an opportunity to go to Gatlinburg, Tennessee for a family vacation. And I like my alone time. So I booked a guided fishing trip, uh, with a outfitter that specializes in smallmouth. And apparently July is a horrible time for smallmouth. But he was able to get me one, uh, literally the last cast of the day. And that was the favorite fish I've ever caught. It it was just, it was amazing. Um, I think he said it was two and a half pounds, 16-ish inches. Just a a beautiful, beautiful fish. That's a huge smallmouth, right? Yeah, apparently. It's the only one I've ever caught, so I have nothing to compare it to. We'll say it is, because I don't know any better. (laughs) It's a trophy for me. (laughs) There you go. Hannah? I would say um, it's probably been about two or three years ago now. I was um, bass fishing, and I came across some – I was bass fishing. I came across some white perch, and I was like, oh, man, there must be white perch here. And so I started fishing for them, and I caught one, and I I knew it was a big one. And so I'm reeling it in. I'm reeling it in. And I get it about to the to my boat, and I was using like a older like Zebco rod, and the rod snaps, and I'm like, "What?" Oh. <laughs> like I'm like freaking out. I'm like, "What?" And so I'm like grabbing, and so I just like end up grabbing the line, and I like grab the line and sling the fish in there. <laughs> so I got the fish, and so I was so happy. I was like, "The rod broke, but I still got the fish. I'm happy." <laughs> so oh I, I look back on that, and I'm like, "That was a really good moment." <laughs> That's awesome. That's commitment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and resourcefulness. Way to go. So, hey, and also, I've I've only ever fished for and caught and know about yellow perch. So, how are white perch different? They're actually crappie. Ah, okay. Another lingo situation. <laughs> I'm not yeah. in Louisiana. In Louisiana, they. Like, you'll hear them called white perch, sockalay. There's so many different names. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's funny. Okay. I feel less bad about how little I know now. That's good. All right. So, 
y'all are our ambassadors in Louisiana and it's it's been tough with COVID and everything else to be able to get anybody together for a hunting or fishing event but what are y'all thinking for like this this coming year do you have any ideas of in-person events that you want to try to host I would love to do a fishing one um it's what I'm most comfortable with, what I'm most knowledgeable with, and it requires next to no equipment. So that's the hope. Yeah, that's a lot of that's a lot of positives right there when you're thinking about getting folks together. Yes, that's definitely what I want to do as well. I really want to do like a spring fishing event. Very cool. Well, listeners in Louisiana, especially, stay tuned for more on that. We'll share it on our socials and certainly the Louisiana Artemis Facebook group um, whenever the time comes. But until then, thank you both so much. I feel like this was a lot of fun. I learned a lot about fish <laughs> and what to call them. Um, yeah, it was great to great to hear what it's like to be a sportswoman in the sportsman's paradise. Yes. I like that. That needs to be the title. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll do it. We'll do it. Awesome. Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis Podcast. We hope you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside.